Acts 17. If you'll turn there with me, please, Acts 17. We're going to read all 34 verses momentarily. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we provided one for you. It's right there in the back of the pew in front of you. You'll see the smaller dark brown one there um, is the Bible. You'll find this on page 785 or 825 of the Pew Bible if you'd like to use one of those. The title of this morning's message is Confronting American Idols. And we're going to get right into the text. The words will be on the screen. But let's look now together at Acts 17, verses 1 through 34. And I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Acts 17, beginning of verse 1, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And the people and city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by, Berea, by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately set Paul on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Well, Father, as always, we are grateful that you have spoken to mankind, that the words you have spoken have been recorded For us, we believe that it is your word in the Bible and that it is living and active and powerful. And so, Lord, we come to it expecting to hear from you in it and expecting you to reveal something of yourself and something of ourselves and what we need to do in response. To that revelation. And so, as always, there is so much that could be said from this passage and such limited time to say it. And so, because you know every need represented in this room, we just ask that you would select the words for us today, even condescending to use the mouth of one like me to speak to the hearts of your people according to our needs and according to your desire to speak to them. And so we ask that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory. For Christ's sake, amen. You may be seated. Paul was continuing his second missionary journey along with Silas and Timothy, and they had arrived initially in Philippi, where before too long, they were tossed into prison. And if you were here um, last week, you recall that. They ended up in prison, and God miraculously intervened, and, and through that intervention, the jailer there in Philippi was saved and baptized, he and his whole household. And shortly after that, Paul and Silas were released from prison and asked 
to leave the city, which they did. And from there, uh, they went to Thessalonica, then Berea and Athens, as we just read in chapter 17. And so I'm going to sort of walk quickly through Thessalonica and Berea, um, sort of as they did. Uh, and then we'll spend more of our time in Athens. But they went first to Thessalonica. And in fact, you see on the map on the back of your bulletin, if you have one, again, the upper left-hand corner is the region of Macedonia. And you'll see just a short hop from Philippi. You've got a bunch of cities, the names just kind of clustered together there. But they made a short hop from Philippi over to Thessalonica and then um, a shorter one even over to Berea. But it, they went in Thessalonica, as was their custom, into the synagogue first to preach to the Jews. And they spent three Sabbath days there. And, you know, it's just interesting to sort of ponder um, the fact that this was, a, this was a really short visit in Thessalonica. We know, of course, the people who lived in Thessalonica were called Thessalonians. And uh, there are two letters Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. There was a church that was established there and took root there out of three weeks of ministry that Paul did. I'm encouraged by that <laughs> to know, to know God, um, that God can do great work with unfinished business of ours. And when we don't get to the end of our agenda, we don't get to the end of our project plan, that, that God can still make good work of that. And, and uh, it seems that's what he did in Thessalonica after three Sabbath days of preaching. It says he reasoned and explained and proved to them from the scriptures that uh, the Christ was who he was proclaiming that he was and that he had to suffer and die. But He's preaching here to Jews, and of course he begins with the scriptures and reasons from the scriptures to his conclusions about Jesus. And, and what, what follows here is really similar to what happened in Pisidian Antioch, or Antioch of Pisidia as, uh, as I've described it, and then Iconium and Lystra. If you remember back in Acts 13 and 14, the same kinds of things happened there where um, before too long, the Jews stirred up a mob, and the mob drove him out of town. That's sort of Paul's pattern, I guess. It's, he just expects that kind of welcoming party at this point for a mob to run him out of town. And so they fled by night to Berea. We read it in, in verses 10 and following. And then verse 11 says something um, Actually, the thing that Berea is best known for by students of the scriptures, it says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were, they were Bible-minded people. They examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was, was claiming was actually true, rather than dismissing it outright. Um, you know, it, it's, it's possible even for people who believe the Bible and love the Bible to get um, either fixed notions of our own of what the Bible teaches and or to find a guy on the internet we really like, okay, and what, what he teaches we accept sort of wholeheartedly or the church, the sort of church community we come from, whatever the case may be, um, but, get, but get to the place where we just, don't, we just accept whole scale what somebody says or reject it outright because it doesn't harmonize with what we've already decided to believe. You tracking with me there? And, and we ought to be like the Bereans to 
receive the word with all eagerness and examine the scriptures to see um, if they were so. And it says, many of them therefore believed. And yet, as again when in, in Lystra, as believers or Jews rather from Antioch and uh, Iconium followed them over to um, Lystra to actually stir up a mob that stoned Paul in Lystra. So it happens here that Jews from Thessalonica followed them to Berea. And they stir up a mob there. And uh, Paul was evacuated and put on a ship and just, and just went out to sea. The, the standard route from um, Thessalonica and Berea to Athens would have been by sea because Mount Olympus was actually in between there. Um, uh, might be a fun hike when you set out to hike a mountain. But otherwise, if you were making a journey to Athens, you might prefer to sail around Mount Olympus rather than to climb over it. Um, but Paul is just put on a ship, and it says that those who were um, uh, piloting the ship or whatever, those who conducted Paul, brought him as far as Athens, and um, he awaited Silas and Timothy there. And, and, and so as he, as he arrives in Athens, we see that his ministry continues to be this example of opposition creating opportunity, right? That crisis creates opportunity. Paul does, Paul does not expect to preach the gospel and not suffer for it. God told him from the time he called him, that's what he could expect. And uh, you, you got you to respect the guy, right? I mean, he walks into the synagogue every time. He knows exactly what he's going to get from the synagogue, presumably, or he at least knows what he ought to bet on if he were a betting man. It continues to be an example of opposition, creating opportunity. But then while he waited in Athens, he preached what is perhaps one of the best-known sermons in the book of Acts and one of the ones that is most, most important to us or to a church like ours that wants to be a church that lives beyond itself. You know, this series in Acts is called Beyond. We want to be a church that lives beyond Sunday, beyond the walls, and beyond the borders. And for our church that makes it very far beyond the borders, um, this sermon, this interaction in Athens is really, really instructive to us. Because he has very different interactions with the Athenians than he has with the Jews. For most of the book of Acts, the whole first 12 chapters really, with, with the exception of going out to Samaria. But it's, it's centered in Jerusalem, right? It's, it's, they're speaking to Jewish people all the time in Jerusalem. And then as they branch out from there, they go into the synagogues first and preach the gospel to Jews there. And so they, he did, and Peter did, um, what we just read about in the first part of chapter 17 when they were in Thessalonica. He reasoned from the scriptures, because they're people who believe the Bible. In Athens, these people don't believe the Bible, don't know the Bible, don't care anything about the Bible. And so he, he begins the conversation and continues the interactions in, in entirely different ways. Or I shouldn't say entirely. Um, but it's a very different approach and it's instructive to us for that reason. And one of the things that Paul does here that he really always does is he confronts their idols. He confronts their idols. And he does so by caring about their idolatry, by noticing their idols, 
by discussing their idols and then by connecting their idolatry to the gospel. And so let's look at that uh, fairly quickly here um, before we apply this to our own setting. But, but first of all, he just, he cares about their idols. Look in verse 16 where it says that while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. I saw one uh, New Testament scholar who just in a, in a commentary translated this as, it irked his spirit. Okay, it's just something sort of goading him. Uh, this, it troubled him that there's, there's, the city is so just overtaken with idolatry. And in fact, people who wrote, um, even in the ancient world, recognized, acknowledged Athens as, as, as a religious city, a very religious city, full of idolatry. He was provoked by it, but... He didn't mock them and ridicule them or demean them for it. Uh, in fact, it says he reasoned with them um, in response. And we'll come around to that in just a moment. But he cared about their idolatry. He saw, he saw a whole city full of idols. And he couldn't rest not speaking to that. He cared about it. Number two, he noticed, he noticed their idols. He paid attention. Verse 16 says, His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. If you jump down to verse 22 where he begins to address the people at the Areopagus, which is also referred to as Mars Hill. But he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this subscription. He's paying attention. He's paying attention. He's actually noticing the things that matter to these people. He notices their idols. Now, um, again, many of them are hard not to notice because there are actually statues and temples and altars and that kind of thing. But he pays attention and notices them. And then following that, he discusses their idols. He has conversation with them. It says in verse 16 again, uh, or it might be 17 actually, he, verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. He had dialogue. Um, that involves talking and listening. It's just a two-way thing. He reasoned with them. He conversed with them. And what that, what that meant is that he's talking with them about things that matter to them. He pays attention enough to, know the th to notice the things they care about. And then he talks with them about them. And then finally, number four, he connects their idolatry to the gospel. Beginning in verse 23, uh, he says... 
as I, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then we jump down to verse 28. Or right before 28, the last sentence there in verse 27. Yet he is actually not far from each one of you, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And he goes on from there, but, but one of the things he does there, he's actually quoting pagan authors. So where he goes into the Jews and says, the scriptures say, it's written in the law and prophets, Abraham or Moses or whatever, he starts there. Here, he actually starts with their altar to the unknown God. And says, this God you worship is unknown? Yeah, I know him. He created all the things that you worship. And the stuff that those idols are made out of. He created all of that. And, uh, but he quotes their poets in leading to the truth of what God has revealed about himself. Which he goes on to say... Uh, down in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. You know, there, there are people who kind of have the mindset, you can't talk that way in this culture. You know, you can't, you can't talk about um, God's judgment and um, repentance and that sort of thing. Um, you know, yeah, decades ago where more people were church going, sure, but, you know, you got you to gotta soften it up a little bit. Um, but, uh, and, and, and there's, there's certainly wisdom to be applied in how we engage people in conversation and that sort of thing. Um, so I don't ever want you to feel like I'm just sort of giving you a license to go hammer people uh, with the truth or to sort of disregard um, the human realities involved in dialogue and conversation with people. But Paul goes from this uh, widespread idolatry to their worship of an unknown God to revelation about God who who is who he says he is, that he's the creator of all those things, and that he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's overlooked it in times past, but now that's the command, and it's the invitation for them to respond to it. He connects their idolatry. He starts there. You see, he doesn't start with Scripture. He starts with what they believe. He starts with what they value and what matters to them but he leads to a clear presentation of the gospel. He confronts their idols. And in order to communicate the gospel to contemporary American culture, we have to confront the idols of the age. You know, Athens was full of them. 
If we were to visit Athens today, we would admire probably the sculpture and the architecture for their artistic beauty alone. And we might even marvel at the fact that that kind of sophistication emerged in the ancient world. Uh, and, and in fact, it, it may be true that nothing has quite surpassed Athens in its cultural advancement since then. I don't really know if that's a true statement, but it was something really quite remarkable in its day, and we might marvel at that, but we would, we'd be less likely, less conscious of the fact that these were temples and altars and images of the things they worshipped, but culture reveals idols. Every culture has its idols, and every culture reveals its idols. We would know, for instance, right now, when people, when people look back and reflect on the history of America, they'll know that New York City, for instance, uh, that the, the idol in New York City is money, right? In Washington, D.C., it's power. In L.A., it's, uh, you know, I'm not really sure if I can put a finger on that one. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's beauty and sex and, and, and sort of, Physical appearance, right? I mean, th- those, those kind of things. In other words, the culture has its idols and, and reveals them in sort of its expressions of culture. We tend to associate I- idols with a plurality of gods, as would have been the case here in Athens or other places in the ancient world. We think of images of wood and stone that represent those gods, but idolatry is something bigger than that. Colossians 3 verse 5 is one verse that says so. There are others we could turn to to look at this, but Colossians 3 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly within you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. Now, that doesn't mean that idolatry is limited to covetousness. But it does mean that idolatry is, is something more than just worshiping images that represent deities. That the, the Bible even itself uses the term in that way that it applies to more abstract kind of things like covetousness. And so let me offer a couple of definitions of idolatry and then maybe some examples. So Paul Tripp says that idolatry is something in creation that claims the place in my heart that only God should have. Something in creation that claims a place in my heart that only God should have. Tim Keller says it's anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, or identity. Idols are not inherently bad things. They're really good things that we make into ultimate things. Okay, idols, idols are not inherently bad things. They're really good things that we make into ultimate things. Now, this is actually, I find, very helpful um, in beginning to diagnose, well, primarily ourselves, and we'll get there in just a minute. I'm going to pull a fast one on you. Uh, So the title is Confronting American Idols, but you and I are American too, and so we're going to confront our own, uh, the idols of our own hearts. But they're really good things that we make into ultimate things. And we really want to have ultimate things. 
We've considered this recently that it isn't the human heart to worship something. We really want to have something ultimate, something bigger than ourselves than we wor- that we worship. The problem is that we want to be in control of them. Uh, at which point, of course, they really cease to be ultimate <laughs> if we're in control of them. And that's the great irony. J.I. Packer, who's a contemporary theologian, wrote that one of the contradictions of fallen human nature is the desire to be Lord of what one worships. Now that's funny and not so funny, isn't it? I would be less, so, less funny if it weren't so true. He says, idolatry was invented to, prevent, to provide sinners with gods they can worship while remaining their own masters. It is trying to play God to one's gods and ending up the captive of them all. Idolatry is trying to play God to one's gods and, in, and ending up the captive of them all. And so what are some of the really good things that we make into ultimate things? Well, it, it, it could be, it can literally be anything that we make ultimate in our life. But what are those things that are more fundamental to our happiness, our meaning in life, or identity than God? Well, again, for some, it can be power, an achievement, even on a smaller scale than the politicians in Washington, D.C., but power and achievement, prosperity and money, sex and romance, nature and the environment. And those are ones, and what's interesting is those that I just mentioned, um, you'll find represented in, in most um, ancient pagan polytheistic religions that have multiple gods, you'll find some god of that, that in some way or another is an expression of power, right? Prosperity, sometimes in the way of fertility of the earth, but uh, sex, romance, love, some expression of that. And, and many times they are they're some embodiment of nature um, that, that represents those gods as well. But see, even for those of us who maybe think we're not guilty of the others, we can make idols out of marriage and family, um, out of nation and political interest. Anything can become an idol to us. I mean, rather, rather than elaborating each of those, there's sort of a diagnostic question we can ask that, that'll help reveal when a good thing has become an ultimate thing. And here's, here's the question. What thing, if it were taken away from you, would change your sense of who you are or even... Uh, qu- cause you to question whether you wanted to go on living. What, what thing, if it were taken away from you, would change your sense of who you are or even cause you to question whether you wanted to go on living? Now that's a diagnostic question that we can, we can have in mind as we're dialoguing with other people, as we're trying to notice what it is that other people value, what matters to them, what is ultimate to them. We can listen and observe as Paul did and try to discern 
Um, what are those things that seem ultimate so that if, that, that if you took it away, it would change their sense of who they were or even cause them to question whether they wanted to go on living? But we need to ask ourselves that question first. Because just because we are Christian, just because we worship the one true God doesn't mean our hearts are not still inclined to make idols out of all kinds of things on this earth. Calvin said the heart of man is an idol factory. Always manufacturing them. And there are are multiple reasons why we don't confront the idols of our age, but one of them, the very first reason, is because we are worshiping the same idols. In many cases, the believers actually worship the same idols as the culture. We don't recognize the idolatry in it because we're participating. And for some believers, money and prosperity really is ultimate to them. They wouldn't say it that way. They wouldn't claim it. But they spent their whole life in pursuit of it. It so defines who they are. If you took it away, they wouldn't even know who they are. And some of them uh, wouldn't even want to go on living. The same is true for power and achievement, their status, or their regard, the esteem they're held in by other people because of those things, because of their position, because of their wealth, or whatever the case may be. And actually... The church itself is, is, is a participant in, in this in a certain way. When you think about the fact that uh, models of starting and growing and building churches in the 21st century um, are kind of built around notions of celebrity and success, self-promotion and personal preference. I mean, the whole, the whole idea that... that um, churchgoers comes with certain preferences and we need to meet those preferences. They become consumers of spiritual experiences and so we become providers of services that satisfy those consumer appetites. Now, that doesn't mean those, those churches um, are engaging in idolatry themselves or that, that those, including ours, by the way. I'm not say, suggesting we're immune to this either. The whole, the whole pressure of the way Uh, that church growth dynamic works. While they might not be idols themselves, and and, and those churches may be um, healthy churches where the, the word of God is being faithfully preached and lives are changed, part of what we do as participants in this is we are just lubricating the idol making machinery of our hearts. Those idol factories we bring to church with our own preferences and interests and that kind of thing, and the church lubricates them for us so we can go about making our idols more efficiently. And believers on an individual level can, uh, um, can do this so, so that, again, if you think money's not an issue, power's not an issue, um, and these other things that tend to occupy a lot of the secular world, um, as I said, we can, we can make an idol out of family, for instance, and we've done so pretty effectively. I'll illustrate just in that, this, this way, um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to perhaps pick a little fight and then walk away. I, I tend to do that uh, with some skill. 
Uh, but I'm sort, of, I'm, I'm sort of raising an issue that I, we don't have time really to address, but I'm, I'm going to make the point in this way. Um, Sunday is not a family day. It's the Lord's day. Have you noticed the language of many evangelicals in recent um, years that, that, family, that Sunday has been declared a family day? It's not a family day. It's the Lord's day. Now, that itself could be a subject of debate. We can have that debate later. You buy me lunch. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll argue with you. But, um, but so, so our, our position on that would be uh, there are ten commandments that are still binding on every believer, that the fourth commandment is still situated between the third and the fifth, that a Sabbath principle still applies, um, and that it is lived out by the church on Sunday. Now, again, we, could, we can debate about that, and I, I do understand and respect the fact that there are people who have different convictions about that. Totally get it. And that's really not my point. To, it's not to argue the point of uh, the Lord's Day, if it were, I would give it the whole time rather than just the last three and a half minutes. But, um, but, but the point is to say most people don't arrive at that position by conviction. That, that position being that Sunday is a family day. Most people don't arrive there by conviction. They arrive there by convenience. To have sort of commandeered the Lord's Day and put it into service in the worship of my idols. And again, the point there is simply to reveal something about our own tendency, our own inclination to do this even, even as believers with good things, with good things. And the family is certainly a good thing, but even that, and even for believers, we can make them ultimate. And so... We need to ask these diagnostic questions of ourselves and ask God to do something about the idols of our own heart so that then we can care about the idolatry of the world we're a part of, that we can pay attention and notice the things that they worship and care about and that we can dialogue about it and actually know how to lead from there to the gospel. Who better to lead an idolater to Jesus than another redeemed idolater? <laughs> and I are one. So are you. But you know what's at stake? We, the reason we have to confront the idols of the culture is because God doesn't offer to share his glory with another. He does not offer to be one more God put on the shelf with other gods. I remember a story shared from a mission trip years ago of a, of a church group uh, or team that had gone to India. And they talked about one of the struggles. They, they didn't have a problem getting many, many people to accept Christ as God and even Savior. They just had a problem with getting them to accept Christ alone. Because they had so many other gods. They had so many gods, it wasn't a problem to add another god to it. Why not? Just increase the inventory. But to get them to accept Christ alone was a problem. But that's all he's offered us. 
That's, that's the only way he's offered us to be saved. Is not, not other ultimate things of value to us, not our idols, not other gods plus Christ, but Christ alone. And so we must confront our idols and the idols of our American culture. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we trust that this truth just finds us out. It just finds us out. And there's something in here that you need to stir in us and continue to work out of us. And we just invite you and urge you to do so. Lord, would you strip away those things that we have made ultimate in our own hearts. We would never want to claim that there is something else that is first place, something else that we value more greatly than you. But we acknowledge that our, our heart is inclined to do so. So Lord, would you reveal them and tear them down that you might be most greatly glorified. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.